Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us today. Hope your week's off to a good start. I know it's just getting going. Just want to let you know, coming up on Wednesday, we have a special broadcast that we'll be doing with our colleagues at KNPR in Las Vegas. And we'll be talking with listeners in both of those cities. That's coming up Wednesday right here on Air Talk in our 9 o'clock hour. But we begin today's program with the investigation into that Alaska Airlines jetliner, which lost its door plug late Friday evening. Then late last night, a school teacher living outside of Portland found in his backyard that door plug, which we heard in the news conference yesterday from the head of the NTSB, that that was very important to the investigation into the cause of what's now grounded a number of Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft, not just those aircraft that are part of the Alaska Airlines fleet, but United and other airlines that use that particular jet. This jet, which lost this section of the hull on uh, Friday night, uh, was actually a fairly new jet purchased less than a year ago. Joining us to talk about the latest details is CNBC airline reporter and frequent guest with us on Air Talk, Leslie Josephs. Leslie, thank you so much for being with us. What is it hoped that having the physical door plug will now provide to investigators? Hi, uh, so thanks for having me on. Um, one thing that we are looking at and investigators are hoping to find out is exactly what was the fail point or points um, that caused this very, very unusual accident to occur. You know, was it something screwed in wrong? Was, were, was there one point of failure? Were there multiple points of failure? And that will give the clues that investigators are looking for to see kind of what caused it and make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. I heard that there were just a handful of open seats on the flight, but amazingly, the uh, window seat and the center seat were vacant on the flight. Um, incredible odds, and thankfully so. It, that's exactly right. Um, it is kind of a game of, of inches that really separated this from being a potentially fatal tragedy. Um, there weren't even serious injuries on board, is what we heard from federal investigators. But you're right that there was a big gaping hole and, and next to 26A, and there was no one in 26A, and there was no one in 26B. Um, which is pretty remarkable. You know, we are after the holiday season. If this had happened over the Christmas season, the plane is likely, you know, probably more full. This sits about 170, 179 passengers, and there were 171 on board. Oh, um, so it's kind of a, a lot of things that they had had lucked out with. Um, still was a very violent incident. We were hearing from regulators, the investigators, that headrests were pulled off. The, the cockpit door blew open. The first officer lost her headset. 
um, and you know, seat backs in, in a few cases were missing, and investigators are going to be looking at this aircraft on the ground to try to piece together what went on in those uh, few minutes in the flight. It's it's hard for me to imagine how, with that level of decompression and that violent an episode, that no one was physically hurt. Because if you're talking about ripping off, um, you know, the, the headrests and things like that, that gives you an idea of the force involved. Exactly. It, it, it's true. It is very remarkable that it happened. It happened not just who was on board and where they were seated, but when it happened. This plane was at about 16,000 feet. It was climbing out of Portland before it had to quickly return after this incident happened. You know, people are still buckled in usually at, at that point. Um, you know, they had cleared 10,000 feet, but 16,000, they were still climbing. Cruising altitude is about double that. So you think of cruising altitude, you hear that uh, that beep and the, the seatbelt sign goes off and flight attendants are, are starting, you know, drinks and uh, snack service. Um, passengers might be, you know, about the cabin going to the, to the restroom, uh, you know, or, or might just kind of take their seatbelt off and, and stand in their seat to stretch their legs. But as far as the circumstances go, things really align to, to prevent this from being a much worse uh, incident and, and essentially what would have been a tragedy. We learned from NTSB Chair uh, Jennifer Omendi that um, the the voice recorder doesn't have anything useful on it because apparently it's limited to two hours and no one pulled the switch that would have extended the amount of time that the voice recording took place. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yes, that's that's something that regulators have been looking for for a long time to have voice uh, recorders last a bit longer. And it is unfortunate that they don't have that information. Um, they are likely going to be able to, in a process, it's going to take months really to get to any kind of conclusion. Um, they the, the investigators are going to be able to sort of piece this together from a lot of physical evidence and interviews, which have already begun um, with the two pilots on on the plane. Um, but you know, there are some lawmakers and uh, NTSB officials who have been looking at cockpit voice recorders that do last a longer time, just because these incidents do occur. And, you know, they think it shouldn't have to operate the same way as maybe a convenience store camera. We're talking with Leslie Joseph, CNBC airline reporter, also with us, veteran aviation pilot Captain John M. Cox, who's CEO of Safety Operating Systems, an aviation consulting firm located in D.C. He's also a frequent commentator on media about uh, air investigations. Uh, Captain Cox, thank you for joining us again. We appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So in, in a case like this, what are the possible reasons behind why this this plug uh, in the shape of a door where there's not an actual working door installed, the reasons why that might have failed? Well, that's exactly what the investigators are going to be uh, asking and looking for evidence to determine. Um, the way this door works is there are 12 what they call stop pads that are attached to the airplane and the door, the, the plug physically rests against those 12 pads. Uh, for, for that door to come off, it means that the door had to come up about an inch and a half or more. To prevent that from happening, there are four retaining bolts that hold it in place. So the investigators are gonna look to see if there's any deformation on those bolts. Are the bolts there? Is the proper hardware there? And then they're going to start looking into the records of how the airplane was assembled, who assembled it, 
were, is all the documentation of proper assembly steps and procedures where they all accomplished. And then they're going to look to see if there are marks on the airplane that can help determine the sequence of how the door uh, departed the airplane. So they're still in an evidence gathering phase to understand the how it happened. Um, And then then the analysis will start to determine what happened here and then what we do to prevent it from happening again. But as it looks right now, there does not appear to be any other of the inspected airplanes that have any uh, anything like this. This is looking like a one off. So would that indicate, as opposed to, say, a defect, defective bolts or something like that, that there may have been some external injury to this portion of the aircraft? It, it doesn't appear so. The airplane's only two months old. It, it uh, has only made about 150 flights. This design has been in service for something over 15 years because there's a different version of the 737 called the 737-900ER. And it has used this same exact uh, design for about the last 15 years. So the design is a proven design. Uh, there are other MAX aircraft that have it uh, and, and one other uh, type of 737. So this has been in service for a number of years. It's got a lot of experience. So now the question centers on the, the assembly of the, this door. It was originally put together in Wichita, Kansas and then shipped by rail to Renton, Washington, where Boeing removes that door so that they can have access to assemble the 737. Then Boeing technicians uh, put the door in place, and they're going to be, the investigators will look very carefully at those records. You'd think with all the safety checks that are part of manufacturing an aircraft, that that being overlooked, every piece of that being in place, I mean, that's obviously a rare, rare event. But is there anything that could explain that? It's certainly a rare event. And the investigators will look not only at the hardware and the assembly process, but also the quality assurance and the safety inspections that go on. And individual people sign those inspections off. And those, all of those individuals will be interviewed in detail by the investigators. So it's understanding the process and to make sure that, that the processes and procedures were followed. And that then if they were, then the, is there a problem with the process? If, they, if there was a deviation from the process, how could that occur? Did this occur during a, a change in shift, um, as an example, where each shift thought the other one had done it. Mm. There should be checks and balances to avoid that. But those are the kinds of questions that investigators will ask. Captain Cox, we're, uh, we understand through the NTSB that a warning light had gone off about, um, I believe it was pressurization, multiple times. And so the aircraft was not to be used over large bodies of water, such as to Hawaii, because of concerns about that warning light. Uh, how common is that to have uh, a particular jet um, say, well, we have concerns, we're not going to use it uh, over the Pacific, for example, but it's okay to fly it over land? But it actually, it's, it's pretty normal. The light that the NTSB has said flickered is what's known as an auto-fail light. And it says that the automatic part of the pressurization system 
is, is not functioning properly. But it came on and went off, came on and went off. And what they have not released yet is to whether the pressurization system was in fact showing problems. Out of abundance of caution, Alaska made the decision not to have the airplane fly over the Pacific or over water for the reason that if there were a depressurization, you're so much further from land. And so the prudent step was to say, okay, well, we'll keep it within the, the United States uh, or at least within North America. And that way, if there is a pressurization problem, they've got a place to go uh, immediately. But there wasn't indications that it was an unsafe condition or they certainly would have grounded the airplane. So, so there, there are questions here that we don't have the answers to yet. So depressurization wouldn't in and of itself, uh, the threat of that be enough to ground it? It would have to be depressurization caused by a loss of integrity in the aircraft itself, the hull? Anytime, if, you, if there is a high chance that you're actually going to have a depressurization, you would certainly not fly the airplane. But a flickering light can be caused by a number of different things. And these, this is the details that we don't have yet. Uh, was the pressurization itself fluctuating, which would indicate the automatic system was struggling with it? Or was it just a light, which could be a sensor? Um, it, it could be a, a ground in the pressurization controller. If the system was functioning normal, then out of abundance of caution, we won't put it out over the ocean, but we'll continue to fly the airplane and troubleshoot it, trying to figure out why this light flickers, but the system is working properly. Those are the kinds of questions that NTSB will be asking. So is it possible the flickering light was unrelated to what was going on with the door plug and also possible that it was related, that somehow there was enough of a shift of the door plug that it was actually detecting a problem? That I would expect if the door had shifted enough where it was causing the pressurization to really have a problem, that you'd hear it. Okay. Uh, normally you'll hear uh, a, a whistling noise, of, and it can be quite loud. Um, and that would tell me that, that there was air going out um, of, through uh, an unexpected place, which would be the, the, that door. That, doesn't, that hasn't uh, been the case that anyone has said so far. So these are, these, are, look, these are points of evidence that people are trying to gather to understand overall. But right now, the only thing they've released is a little bit of information about a flickering light. And that doesn't give us enough information to draw much of a conclusion. We're talking with Captain John M. Cox, veteran pilot and CEO of Safety Operating Systems, the consulting firm located in D.C. Leslie Joseph's airline reporter for CNBC with us as well. Leslie, with the grounding of the 737 MAX 9s, has that had much of an effect on cancellation of flights? We have seen several hundred cancellations. Um, again, this, this happened second week of January. We're getting into like a real travel lull after the mad rush that we saw at the end of the year around Christmas and New Year's. Um, but, you know, it's, when it's your flight, it's, it's really annoying. Um, you know, luckily everyone was, was safe on the flight, but the cancellations, now we are see them piling up. 
uh, you know, several hundred at United and Alaska, the two U.S. airlines that do operate the 737 MAX 9. Um, this is also not as common a plane as the MAX 8, which is the, the best-selling model, uh, kind of the standard model. The, the 737 MAX 9 is a little bit bigger. Um, so we are seeing some cancellations. Uh, you know, this Boeing put out instructions for airlines um, several minutes ago, actually, uh, to, to start the inspections, and that's a step toward getting the planes flying again. Uh, we're not really clear how many hours it will take per plane, but it is kind of going in the right direction. So it's not exactly clear how long it'll take and, and how long these cancellations will last. Um, but it will be several days of, of the airlines really having to try to scramble. Uh, United Airlines, you know, for in its, in its favor, they have a very varied fleet type. They have Airbus planes, narrow-body planes, wide-body planes, and a little bit more flexibility, whereas Alaska Airlines is, you know, a bigger portion of their fleet is the 737 MAX 9. I think it's a little bit under a third. Um, so they really need those planes uh, to fly. But we're, we're not talking about the peak period. Um, so what the airlines have been doing is allowing travelers to, uh, you know, they're waiving change fees and, and fare differences um, so that travelers can be a little bit flexible with their, their travel plans. But it should last for several days more. And Leslie, just final question. So as you read that federal memo, does it appear once thorough inspections are done, if nothing is determined to be a problem with the integrity of, of those door plugs, that those jets will be returning to service? Or, or is more going to have to be understood about the failure of the door plug in, in this jet bound for Ontario before they'll be comfortable letting those jets fly? The uh, inspection, because Boeing and the FAA work very closely on the language and the inspection steps that need to occur um, for the planes to get back into service. So, but never say never. This is the aviation industry, and you know there's always some kind of, uh, or often, or I should say, uh, some kind of curveball at the end. Um, but but they were really working in concert here, so it doesn't seem that the FAA is going to find something else. Um, but the FAA, of course, you know, has been under fire because it's, that's the agency that certified these planes uh, to begin with. And they have this grounding, um, you know, almost four years ago, five years ago at this point, um, after after two crashes of a, a smaller model of the MAX. Um, and that was you know, lifted in 2020. But the FAA is trying to be extra, extra careful um, because they don't want to lose uh, public and industry confidence. Leslie, as always, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your reporting on this. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. CNBC airline reporter Leslie Josephs and our thanks to our expert on aviation, Captain John M. Cox of Safety Operating Systems, longtime pilot and a man who's also commented on uh, major American television networks about issues of aircraft safety. It's Air Talk on L.A. at 89.3. Coming up, we're going to talk about daily fantasy sports, uh, highly popular uh, online. Some say gaming, others say not. How does that fit into California law, which doesn't allow for legalized sports betting? We'll talk about it when we come back in just one minute.
support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Fantasy sports have been around for many, many years. Play, uh, players have tried to outsmart each other in ball knowledge. Some have identified daily fantasy sports, one of its more popular forms, as uh, to begin its rise in 2007 with Fantasy Sports Live releasing that year, which was one of the first DFS sites. Since then, it's only grown in size. You probably know the names FanDuel and DraftKings, but there's also a platform, Prize Picks, which is dominant in California. So these essentially are pay-to-play formats. You build a team of players whose performances impact whether or not you're paid out. For many, the format seems like sports gambling, which is illegal in California. So what separates the two? Joining us is Adam Candy, managing editor for Legal Sports Report, a trade publication which covers legal sports betting and daily fantasy sports industries. Adam, so good to have you with us. We appreciate it. Larry, a pleasure to join you again. So let's talk first about how just generally daily fantasy sports work. How is this different than uh, going through a sports book, for example, and placing a bet on a specific game or proposition related to a specific athletic event? Well, keep that idea of a proposition bet in mind. But for your audience, to be clear, for anyone who's ever played fantasy football during the NFL season, this is likely a bit different than the format that you're used to in which you draft a team and you see how they perform week to week against a chosen group of competition. Uh, When you talk about daily fantasy sports, their origins are that you select a lineup that generally involves a salary cap. So you have a certain pot of money from which you are selecting your team and you are generally competing against another user as opposed to against the house. And that's a key distinction that a lot of folks in the legality space have been discussing when it comes to daily fantasy sports. What has evolved here in the last few years with companies like prize picks and underdog among others is a format that closely mirrors prop betting. And when we talk about prop betting, we're talking about betting on the individual performance of a player. So instead of saying, I'm going to bet on the Los Angeles Rams to win the game today, you would instead be betting on saying, 
I believe that Matthew Stafford is going to throw for more than a certain amount of yards. And that is a little bit closer to what the prize picks and underdog formats look like, which in the eyes of some does closely mirror prop betting that you would do via a sports betting app. Now, I understand that California's Attorney General, Rob Bonta, his office is actually reviewing this sort of daily fantasy prop uh, type betting. So what are they looking at? So this actually, Larry, emerged from a request from State Senator Scott Wilk, who wrote to the attorney general in October asking for a further investigation of whether daily fantasy sports are skill based or whether they are a game of chance. And this is not in any way a new discussion. This has been at the center of the legality of daily fantasy sports well back into uh, 2010 and coming to a head in 2015, where DraftKings and FanDuel, who we now know as sports betting operators, when they had their roots in daily fantasy sports, this was a major question as to their legality on a state-by-state basis. So Rob Bonta is looking into that distinction in particular, which we will find out more if uh, if past investigations of this type are any guide we probably look for something within the next six to nine months all right and um what was the determination about DraftKings and FanDuel were they determined to be games of skill well it really did matter what state you were talking about Larry because on a state-by-state basis different state regulators came to different conclusions about that now Those companies continue to offer daily fantasy games in California. Uh, There are some states that explicitly pass laws that allow them to do this. And there are some states that explicitly pass laws banning daily fantasy sports. So it has happened both ways in different states. And, you know, most fantasy sports operate under a fantasy sports carve out in a federal law Uh, the Unlawful Internet Enforcement uh, Gaming Act that was passed a few years ago uh, dealing with other forms of legalized gaming. We're talking with Adam Candy of Legal Sports Report, also with us Professor Emeritus of Law at Whittier College, I. Nelson Rose. Professor Rose specializes in gambling and gaming law, and his first appearance with us on Air Talk goes back decades. Professor Rose, good to have you with us again. <laughs> decades, yes, yes, but I was only a child. I know, me time. too, right? We were just uh, yeah. just teens. Uh, so let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about um, where this this newest generation of daily fantasy. Uh, like prize picks or underdog fantasy, in your view, is this a significantly different animal? Well, first, daily fantasy sports itself is significantly different from season long. I mean, season long, which started as what was called rotisserie leagues, and you could trade players. Daily fantasy sports already has eliminated a lot of the skill elements from season long the problem with the new one is just what adam said a lot of it looks exactly like prop betting like uh i just went there and you can do a uh over under on lebron james scoring 24 and a half points it's hard to see how that comes under the idea of forming a league you're basically betting 
exactly like you would in Las Vegas. Um, the thing about fantasy sports is they do like to have it both ways. Um, I mean, one of them is in England saying they are gambling so they can get a license. Mostly the daily fantasy sports operators say, well, they're games of skill. The prob There's some problems with that. First, there is no federal carve-out. The, they're reading the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act in a way they want to. Um, it doesn't say fantasy sports is legal. The problem is they're also getting really close to the Federal Wire Act, which makes it a federal crime to be using any internet uh, or telephone wire to make bets on sports events. And I think the attorney general is going to come out and say something which is going to scare a lot of these operators out of California. And will that have any effect on other states, do you think? Uh, you know, California no. carries weight in some areas with its rulings. You don't think in this case? I don't think it will affect the other states. It certainly affects the operators. I mean, California has a population greater than Canada, so it's such a major market. But the operators are staying away from states where there's either an opinion that says they can't be there or there's just an announcement like in Hawaii and Nevada that said, we don't like you and we will arrest you. So those states they're staying out of. Um, right now they're up to, or they're down to, 31 states. Why does um, the determination between game of chance or, or um, game of skill matter for determining whether it's legal or illegal. I mean, and, and beyond that, it would seem like sports betting is both because you, you have to have skill to know enough about a player's performance, particularly if you're doing a prop bet, um, to increase your odds. But at the same time, you don't know if that player is going to go down in the first quarter of a game with injury. That That's the sort of luck part of it. So, so, so first of all, how do you determine whether it's luck or chance? And secondly, how does the law look at the difference? Well, California actually has a, a statute that legalizes contests of skill, but and they were uh, designed for those doing it by mail, trying to do a crossword puzzle. So if they can fall under the statute, that's great. But it's not a contest of skill if you're only betting against the house. Um, it really comes down to the definition under state law. Almost all states say it's got to be predominantly skill and you can't have chance enter at any point that would determine the outcome. So the argument about uh, season-long fantasy sports has been, yeah, you can have an injury, but everybody can have an injury the, the, over an entire season. And you can trade players. Um, interesting, even the tax authorities have got into this, saying season-long is not gambling so it doesn't fall under the special gambling taxes 
but daily fantasy sports is gambling. We're talking. What is? Yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, we're talking with uh, Professor Emeritus of Law at Whittier College, I. Nelson Rose, who specializes in gambling and gaming law. Adam Candy, managing editor for Legal Sports Report, the trade publication, is is with us as well. So, Adam, it, it would seem that the state attorney general's decision on the legality of um, the daily fantasy sports, particularly with with those offering proposition bets. Uh, I I guess I shouldn't call them bets uh, because that's not (laughs) determined. Proposition wagering. No, I shouldn't call them that. Proposition (laughs) picks. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I guess that this shows the difficulty in the definition. I I guess, um, you know, this is going to be a huge deal for these companies. Absolutely, it will be. There are only a handful of markets left in the United States in which we have sports betting not having been legalized in some way, shape, or form that have significant market potential for not only sports betting operators, but what happens to these daily fantasy sports companies as well. Uh, California, of course, being one of them. We're going through some legal questions in Florida right now, Texas as well. So when it comes to the state of California and what these markets mean for companies like Prize Picks and Underdog, one of their major advantages right now is that they are operating in states where place, uh, companies like DraftKings and FanDuel either are not willing to operate or cannot operate. And that gives them an advantage that if they were to lose that in California would be, uh, we would not say necessarily fatal to those companies, but they would have to take serious looks at their businesses, depending on what happens here in California. Adam, thank you so much. Professor Rose, thank you for being with us. Great to have both of you back with us on the program on Air Talk on LA is 89.3. Coming up, we take a look at the evolution of the IUD. Concerns about the pain on insertion of the intrauterine device, as well as the different types of IUDs that are used. Uh, for contraception. That's all coming up. We'll be talking with UCLA Health OBGYN Dr. Lena Nathan, and we'll be talking with Dr. Maureen Baldwin, who's with Oregon Health and Science University and has actually done research into the pain involved with IUD insertion. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The journalists in the LAist newsroom work for you. I'm LAist higher education correspondent Adolfo Guzman Lopez. What the students are speaking about it is it's extremely valid. My reporting is about how students use higher education toward a better life. For the first time since being in this campus, it made me feel unsafe. Struggling through challenges like ethnicity, class, poverty, and family pressures. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism.
Coming up next hour on Air Talk, our Every Monday series on Southern California history. Today, smog. I recall back when our studios were on the campus of Pasadena City College, and I had an office that looked up at the San Gabriel Mountains, except in the summer, I almost never saw those mountains. They were just a few miles away. I could essentially drive up the street into the mountains that I could not see from the office. That's how bad air pollution was up through the early to mid-1990s. But air quality has improved dramatically. We still have a significant ways to go, but we'll talk about the evolution of pollution control devices, how air quality affected the day-to-day life of Southern Californians, how it was depicted in film and TV. Remember the uh, old TV show Dragnet with Jack Webb, This is the City? You'd always see a very smog-obscured Los Angeles at that opening to Dragnet. So always uh, depicted in film and TV as well. We'll talk about that next hour and also a look at a wonderful new book on the great Ella Fitzgerald, who lived for many years here in Los Angeles. We'll talk about her musical legacy, which is vast. But we spend our time right now looking at intrauterine devices known as IUDs, touted as a highly effective form of long-term birth control. But getting one isn't uh, easy or painless for every person. Uh, Reports have been made of painful procedures and some negative side effects. And, of course, there also is the dark history of the IUD known as the Dalcon Shield going back a number of years ago. If you have questions about the IUD, its effectiveness, and some of the concerns that are raised with use of the IUD, you can join us at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. With me from UCLA Health is obstetrician-gynecologist Dr. Lena Nathan. Dr. Nathan, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm old enough to remember a time when IUDs went from being a highly popular form of contraception uh, to cause for deep concern because of injuries women suffered from from the Dalcon Shield. Uh, And, of course, there's been a tremendous rebound since. Just speak to that sort of evolution of the image of the IUD. Yes, you're absolutely correct. The Daikon Shield really did cause a lot of issues in women, and IUDs were pulled from the market. However, since then, uh, we have come up with tremendous advances and uh, great IUDs, which can help women not only with birth control, but with bleeding issues, endometriosis. It's really become a panacea for many conditions, and uh, we certainly encourage women not to shy away from considering IUDs uh, in this day and age. What's the statistical of of contraceptive success for IUDs versus other forms of birth control? So the IUD is very effective for birth control. We consider it a long-term reversible contraceptive, which means that it is just as good as getting your tubes tied However, you can reverse it by removing the IUD and uh, can try for pregnancy right away. So its efficacy is greater than 99% because there is no user error involved with the IUD. Um, We say set it and forget it. You put it in and nothing, you don't have to do anything more. How does it work? 
So it depends on the type of IUD. There is a non-hormonal IUD called the Paragard, which is just made of copper. The IUD with its copper will destroy the egg and sperm as it enters the uterus and thereby provide very efficient contraception. That is a great option for women who prefer not to use hormones. And then there's the Mirena IUD or various forms of uh, hormonal IUDs, which have a small amount of progesterone in them. The progesterone um, helps to thin out the lining of the uterus so that it's an inhospitable environment for an embryo. It also will destroy the egg and sperm as it comes uh, down through the uterus. So it works in two ways. And why would a woman choose to to have the progesterone-equipped IUD versus the copper alone if the copper is so effective? The progesterone IUD is amazing because about 50% of women who have it will, will, will not have a period. So this is great for women who are very active and don't want to bleed each month or have very heavy or disruptive periods. We use it for that indication in addition to contraception. Um, uh, the other 50% of women will have very light spotting with their period. So it's great um, for this reason. And so you, it, it sounds like there are women who choose to, to use it even if they have no intention of being sexually active for these other reasons. Absolutely. In fact, the uh, progesterone infused IUD can even uh, prevent or uh, prevent the progression of endometrial cancer. So by having a lining that is very, very thin, um, you can prevent cancer in addition to uh, preventing bleeding each month. We're talking with UCLA Health OBGYN, Dr. Lena Nathan. If you have questions for her about uh, the contraception IUD intrauterine device, we're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email your question to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. A couple weeks ago, there was a new York Times article by Alicia Haradasani Gupta that looked at the pain involved with the uh, insertion of the IUD and questions about how physicians who are are using IUD with their patients, to what degree they're using pain relief in that process. With us, a researcher who's looked at that very issue from Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Dr. Maureen Baldwin, who is a complex family planning specialist and gynecologist. Dr. Baldwin, thank you for being with us. Good morning. So what did your research find about uh, the timing of IUD placement uh, and and ways of improving pain relief involved in the procedure? Um, well, our group at our institution in Portland, Oregon, we've done a lot of research on pain with gynecologic procedures. And one of the studies I looked at was uh, the experience of people getting an IUD really early, recently after a birth, and to find out if it was more painful or less painful to have an IUD placed within just a couple of weeks of having a, either a C-section or a vaginal birth. And we uh, found that um, it actually was less painful uh, earlier on, right after the birth, than later on. Is that just because the pain of childbirth is so great? It just comparatively seems like less pain? 
I think that could be part of it. I think part of the pain experience is people's um, overall feeling about being, um, you know, vulnerable at the doctor's office. And after they've gone through such a big experience of a birth, that seems maybe less, less of a big deal. Also, in in measuring pain, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to do that subjectively. Uh, do we have a good understanding of to what degree IUD placement is painful? We, I mean, it always is a subjective measurement. It's a it's a measurement that the patient or the participant in the research study um, tells us. And there's a, two main ways that we measure pain during um, gynecologic procedures. Um, one of the ways is with a typical pain scale, like a zero to 10 scale with 10 being the worst imaginable pain and zero being no pain at all. And then the other measurement, um, which gives us a few more numbers to deal with is a 100 millimeter scale. So it's a line on a piece of paper and the participant sort of marks on the line where they are on the pain scale from zero to 100. And what seems to be the most effective way of of relieving pain uh, with IUD placement? Well, uh, you know, general pain uh, experience is really wide, it varies widely. So someone might say they have a, you know, 56 millimeters of pain or, you know, a three out of 10 pain. Um, And so most studies have looked at the overall decrease in pain for a group of people rather than that individual person. And so when we look at different trials of interventions, the interventions usually focus on um, you know, some of the different aspects of the IUD procedure. So one of them is cramping of the uterus. So using ibuprofen or other anti-inflammatories like naproxen. All right. um, other, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, and other methods. Oh, there's other methods like, uh, should we open the cervix more and soften the cervix by using, you know, the same kinds of medications we use to get a cervix ready for, for labor? Uh, or should we numb the cervix, putting injections or topical applications of, of anesthetics like lidocaine? All right. We're talking with researcher and physician Dr. Maureen Baldwin of Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, complex family planning specialist and gynecologist. Also with us, UCLA Health OBGYN, Dr. Lena Nathan, to answer your questions about the uh, IUD intrauterine devices, 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email your question to comments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. More questions with our physician experts when we come back in one minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Coming up next hour, the great Ella Fitzgerald. We listen to her music and we look at her tremendous legacy from bebop to the great American songbook and the high regard with which instrumentalists held her. That wasn't always the case with singers with big bands or with jazz groups, but they certainly admired her tremendous vocal ability and her improvisational skills. We'll talk about the legacy of Ella Fitzgerald coming up next hour. But right now, our attention is turned to intrauterine devices, uh, IUDs as they're known, and talking about uh, benefits they can provide for contraception, 
also concerns some women have about the discomfort or pain uh, with the placement of the IUD. We're talking with Dr. Maureen Baldwin of Oregon Health and Science University in Portland and Dr. Lena Nathan, UCLA Health. Priya in West Los Angeles says, I've had a copper IUD for 10 years. Uh, What is the expiration date for a copper IUD? Dr. Nathan? That's a great question. We do recommend removing and replacing the IUD, uh, the copper IUD after 10 years. Okay. And would there be any problem with Priya having another copper IUD to follow the current one? Not at all. She can definitely uh, have this one removed and replaced and keep her next copper IUD for another 10 years. And that's just done concurrently or is in separate uh, visits? It will be done in one visit and probably takes about five minutes or so. Ruth in Culver City asks, are IUDs helpful for people in going through menopause to control hormones? Dr. Baldwin. So the IUD can be real helpful for um, the transition between perimenopause in your 40s to um, early menopause in your early 50s because it can help um, uh, reduce heavy menstrual bleeding that's common during that time period. And if you want to try using um, any um, hormone therapy um, after discussion about whether it's appropriate for you, um, the IUD can provide some protection for um, reducing the risk of cancer. Margaret in Long Beach emailed us, the worst day of my life, IUD insertion in 1971, the best day of my life, IUD removal in 1973. That's Margaret in Long Beach. Dr. Nathan, I mean, this is back to that era when uh, IUDs were causing considerable problems. Yes. Um, I will tell you that IUDs, as wonderful as they are, they are not for everybody. I've had a few patients where they just hated the IUD from insertion through the days that they had it in, and they did have it removed. Uh, They would come back and have it removed with me um, just shortly after insertion. So it can happen. Um, However, the IUDs now are just so much better. It's rare for this situation. I mean, this 50 years ago that she's describing. So what are the reasons why, aside from the pain or discomfort when the IUD is being placed, what are the reasons that a patient might come back and want to have it removed? Uh, I mean, aside from a desire to get pregnant, but but what would be the discomfort after it's inserted? So women can have persistent cramping. It Again, it's rare, um, but I have seen it where women have persistent cramping, uh, where they feel the IUD sitting in their uterus. Um, sometimes it's because of uh, persistent spotting and bleeding as well, that they have irregular bleeding that they um, do not want. Um, with the copper IUD, there can be heavier periods or more cramping with periods so that can be a reason why women want the IUD removed earlier than the expiration date. Aria in Los Angeles emailed, please talk about how common ectopic pregnancies are with IUDs. I had one, and I know so many young women that have, but it's rarely talked about. Dr. Baldwin? Yeah, ectopic pregnancy is very rare overall. It's less than um, 0.1%. And um, people think about it in association with the IUD because the IUD is so good at preventing pregnancy that the only pregnancies we often ever see are with ectopic pregnancies with the IUD. Um, And so um, so we think about it more often, but the rate is still the same as in the general population. 
Jules in Long Beach emailed, while the Dowcon, uh, while the shield caused a lot of heartache, I used it for several years very successfully. I didn't have children before I was ready, then had two successful pregnancies. When I was ready, I had to opt out of the subsequent lawsuit since I was never harmed. I continued to use the loop until menopause. Uh, Anne in Los Angeles emailed, I got a, a Paragard IUD in 2006 while working at a Planned Parenthood in another state. The measure was truly excruciating as my uterus was barely large enough. When I got it replaced 10 years later at a different clinic, their protocol was to describe Ativan before insertion, which helped immensely. All in all, the pain was worth it. Best birth control ever. I know they make smaller-sized hormonal IUDs for women who haven't been pregnant. I wish there were copper IUDs with this option. That's Anne in Los Angeles. I want to thank our guests for being with us and sharing their expertise. Dr. Maureen Baldwin of Oregon Health and Science University in Portland and Dr. Lena Nathan, UCLA Health, uh, both OBGYNs. Uh, Dr. Baldwin also doing research on the pain and the timing involved with IUD placement. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. Much more to come in the second hour. I'll tell you about it momentarily. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Every Monday, we take a look at an important aspect of Southern California history. And today, it's air quality and smog. For many of us who grew up in Southern California, we remember those days of burning lungs, of air that was so thick you couldn't see mountains even when you were virtually up against them. Now, things have changed much for the better. It's one of the few areas I've been talking about in nearly 40 years of hosting Air Talk where we have seen dramatic improvements. So many of the other issues have either gotten worse or we haven't seen to make much progress. With air quality, we've made huge progress. There's still problems. And of course, Los Angeles's region continues to be the most uh, air polluted in the country. 
Nonetheless, we're not where we were even as recently as 1989 when more than 200 days out of the year exceeded the federal ozone standard of 0.075 parts per million of ozone. Joining us to talk about the history of smog is Chris Jacobs, a journalist and co-author of the book Smog Town, the lung-burning history of pollution in Los Angeles. Chip Jacobs is with us. And Ed A who's Professor Emeritus at USC's Keck School of Medicine. He's in uh, population and public health science, uh, working there for many years. Uh, Ed and Chip, good to have you both with us. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. I want to get our listeners involved. So share with us as a listener your memories of air pollution. If you've been here for decades, growing up in Southern California or being a longtime resident, I'm a fourth generation so I remember my great-grandfather talking about air pollution because he came here at the turn of the 20th century. My father and grandfather talking about it and my own experiences growing up in the 1960s and 70s in Los Angeles with terrible air quality. 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Chip, let me start with you just to lay out how much a part of the culture air pollution was. I remember the start of Dragnet. This is the city on TV in the smog-filled skies. You could see City Hall, not much else. I mean, it's been depicted in movies, TV, and written about. Uh, I'm very much a child of Pasadena smog. In the 70s, you know, it ruined a lot of outdoor fun. Um Baseball games, you know, where you start with a blue sky and it seemed like a fog rolled in and all of a sudden your asthmatic friends were rolling, were running for the primatine mist. Game is canceled. I remember one day just uh, being hit by this gross plume coming out of the air. I didn't have asthma. I had a terrible headache and my eyes were watering. My mom, you know, in her unscientific way just said, you know, uh, it's bad outside. Here's some aspirin and a washcloth. Yeah. And, um, you know, I live very, I, I grew up very close to Mount Wilson, and it would be like a uh, magic trick where one moment you can see some of the antennas uh, sprouting, and the next you can't see anything. It's just this white, gray, um, you know, uh, disappearing act. And uh, it, it got me interested in being. Uh, interested in writing about the environment because this seems so unnatural. Also, uh, I, I recall that burning feeling in the lungs because I I don't remember events being curtailed. I was still out playing. We're still, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. I just remember my lungs burning and wondering, wow, why is that? What's causing this? And, you know, in little kids, shortness of breath, you don't really know what's going on because you take the smog for granted. Uh, Ed, let me ask you about um, what's changed, because our skies, even though we still run afoul of those federal air pollution standards and still have uh, the worst air quality in the country, you know, what has caused that improvement? What technology has, has, has brought this? Well, there's been a tremendous amount of different technologies, policies, approaches that have been brought forward both by the state and the regional agencies to try and clean up the air. It's been really a, a huge success story in terms of understanding improvement in Los Angeles. This is a combination of stationary sources, controls on refineries and power plants and 
chemical and manufacturing, but also tremendous controls on mobile sources, on cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships, all of these things. I mean, the problem is really so vast here and so many millions of sources here that, that really one has to do a sort of a full-court approach to try and address everything we can to try and reduce that because there's tremendous population growth and, and economic growth at the same time here in Southern California. So many more cars and trucks and perhaps fewer factories than we used to have, but but still a lot of them nonetheless. So we, we saw when it comes to, to cars, um, we saw lead removed from gasoline. We saw uh, smog checks on cars as a part of older cars getting, regist- uh, getting their registration renewed, and we saw catalytic converters, uh, which uh, auto manufacturers fought, and um, the argument was it going to make cars too expensive for people. Um, that, of course, went along with unleaded gases introduction as well. How big were these these combined car factors in reducing air pollution? Well, they all help, but of course there are hundreds of policies that have been put into place. The uh, particularly in the early 1990s, the move uh, to to uh, computer controlled uh, onboard diagnostics for cars to try and fit that back in reformulated fuels. We you know this that we change the gas. What's actually how the gas is made from it, during the smog producing the most severe smog producing parts of the year from February. That through Which does fall. add cost to the gasoline. Makes it's it a little more expensive. One of a number of reasons we spend a lot more money than other people <laughs> in other parts of the country. Yeah, that is absolutely true. But, you know, it's for a reason because we want to try to slow down that, that chemical reactivity that takes place in the air here. We're sort of in the perfect storm of, of long days of sunshine and lots of ultraviolet radiation from the sun, which fuels this photochemistry that takes place in the skies on summer days. So what are what are the things, when we talk about smog, air pollution generally, ozone, as mentioning the number of days, that's one of them. And, and But what are the other things? What do we typically see with smog? Well, typically what we see, or I guess what we don't see because of the smog, is the uh, particulates, the small, you might think of them as small pieces of dirt floating in the air, different sizes. Also nitrogen oxides. Uh, whenever you burn anything, it's never completely efficient. And so you always have some byproduct, and that leftover is what sort of goes into the mix in the air. In addition, we have a lot of uh, different reactive organic gases, and all those things sort of combine and react with the energy provided by the ultraviolet sunlight uh, to lead to even new chemicals that weren't there before. So we have uh, both a primary emissions problem, that is what comes directly from a tailpipe, from a smokestack, et cetera, but also what is cooked and created in the air. So is this one of the reasons why then hot summer days we have a bigger challenge with air quality? That's certainly true for ozone and for many other kinds of pollutants. But we also have a fall, a winter pollution problem too. Um, and you, you've seen that too. There are some days where uh, it, it also is hazy. There are, there are uh, uh, advisories from the local district about burning wood in, sto- in uh, fireplaces. And is that secondary process you talked about occurring even in the cooler temperatures? It, it does occur to some extent in the cooler temperatures. but it's, uh, And, of course, uh, cooler temperatures with climate change is a relative thing here in Southern California because we, we can have 85, 95-degree days even in December. And so that sort of turns it on its head. Uh, but yes, generally speaking, we have more photochemistry going on in the summertime. And ozone, though it's an irritant to the lungs, we don't see it, right? No, ozone is a clear and colorless gas, so it's something we don't see. What we typically see, that that historically brown smog that is sort of associated with Los Angeles, uh, people used to think was 
holy nitrogen oxide, nitrogen dioxide, which is a brown gas. But in fact, it has to do as much or more really with the small particles in the air that reflect the light, refract the light, and give us that sort of brownish tinge. And and uh, as much of this uh, diesel particulates? A huge amount of this problem has been the, the diesel uh, emissions from engines because of the fact that diesels, while very powerful engines for moving heavy machinery and, and materials and so forth, also emit high concentrations of very small particles and also high concentrations of nitrogen oxides, both of which are problematic for air pollution, and both of which we've you know, clamped down pretty hard to try and improve the air quality here. We're talking with Professor Emeritus, USC Keck School of Medicine, uh, Ed Aval. He's uh, in the Department of Population Public Health Science. Also with us, Chip Jacobs, who's a journalist, co-author of Spogtown, The Lung-Burning History of Pollution in Los Angeles. This is our Monday Southern California history segment of Air Talk. And I'd like to hear from you your memories of air pollution in Southern California. If you've been here for decades, share with us the before and after, because uh, it is stark. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or email us at atcomments at las.com using your first name and location. Chuck in Westwood. I understand you're a native Angelino, so Chuck, please share with us your memories of smog decades ago. Well, speaking of history of this issue, um, and it was the dominant issue of uh, certainly the 50s and 60s. I was part of a volunteer group of uh, activists in 70, 71, 72 that joined uh, the People's Lobby, which was a political activist group, and they wanted to address this number one issue, um, smog. So there was an initiative started, you know, much like we have initiatives now. Yeah, yeah. did it pass? It, it, it got on the ballot. And I'm, I'm mentioning that because it was the first initiative in California that got on the ballot. And I can tell wow. you it wasn't easy to get on the ballot. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't. Um, Chuck, yeah, thank you. Yeah. I, I appreciate your call. 866 893 5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. John in Fullerton emailed, when we moved to Fullerton 25 years ago, it was rare to see the mountains or downtown L.A. Now we get crystal clear views of both. There's a beautiful panoramic view of downtown, including the reflection from Disney Hall from the intersection of State College and Baston Cherry in Fullerton. Thank you for that, John. And Tom and Chicago emailed, although I no longer live in L.A., I lived there for 30 years, starting in 1990. I remember the layer of brown smog all around me from downtown L.A. in the early 90s. It disappeared slowly. I can hardly believe I can now say, remember when? The difference in air quality is remarkable, truly an accomplishment. Tom, that is so true. And James in Hollywood emailed, my mom grew up in the South Bay in the 70s. She claimed she didn't know there were mountains in L.A. until she came back to visit after college in the 90s. I love it. Great anecdotes. 866-893-5722. Chip, can you speak a bit to how smog affected life for the summer? Because you grew up in this area of Pasadena where people of means would actually clear out during large 
parts of the summer month and go to places like Newport Beach to avoid not just the heat and the pre-air conditioning days, but polluted skies. Absolutely. Uh, it was sort of like we were smog snowbirds. And yeah. uh, we did try to get out of L.A. in the summer. It was, um, the, even if you were totally healthy, it could be unbearable. And, um, you know, s- smog attacks weren't just, didn't just come and go. Sometimes they lasted a week. And, um, you know, it really made you wonder as a little kid, like how well adults were running the world. I remember asking my mom, you know, how long has this been going on? And she grew up in the far worse times of it in the 40s and 50s. And she just said things are improving, but it sure didn't seem to be improving. And um, smog um, hit Los Angeles in 1943 on a July day. And it was like an unwelcome guest. Yeah, share with us what that day was like. It was an incredible thing. You know, L.A., um, it was in the middle of the war. L.A. was on a hot streak. L.A. started becoming a counter argument that New York, Boston, they were the uh, they, they were the, the central cords of America. We had um, a, a beginning of a freeway system. We had the idea of suburban growth. Uh, we had the oil industry, the agricultural Hollywood. Uh, aerospace. The Olympics had just occurred here in 32. Exactly. So L.A. was was doing very well. And then this unwanted guest came out of the sky July 8th, 1943. And um, it absolutely blinded drivers, caused car accidents, left window washers hanging in this murk. Um, uh, There were stories about mothers grabbing children and taking them into hotels just to get away from it because it just sort of rolled in and their their children were coughing and a mother's first instinct is protection. Um, it, um, it got so bad that after a few smog attacks, the mayor of Los Angeles came out and um, uh, there had been some rumors that, that um, it was actually part of World War II and the Japanese bombers were unleashing chemical uh, bombs uh, to scare and terrorize us. And that proved just to be uh, a rumor. But the mayor of Los Angeles said, uh, we're going to get to the bottom of it. This is Fletcher Bowron. He mm-hmm. replaced a very corrupt mayor. And he said, uh, we, uh, uh, believe me, people, we will get rid of these vexing fumes. That's what he called them within four months. Within four months. He w- underestimated the scope yeah, of the problem uh, because they didn't know what the problem yeah, was. Four and a half decades. Uh, that he just misspoke. Uh, what about uh, the the wartime factories? Because we had aircraft manufacturing, so many things that were happening here during World War II. Was that a precipitating cause? Uh, absolutely. In fact, um, the, the first belief was um, be- we there was no atmospheric chemistry. There was no people like Doctor Avil. Um, you know, it was. Uh, engineers scrambling around, they thought it was an industrial engineering problem. And if they went to a, um, if they went to a smokestack, they would find it faulty. And they believed a, a gas company plant producing artificial rubber because all the natural rubber was going to the war effort. They believed that was the cause of the problem because they discovered there was grit on cars nearby and hotel curtains were greasy. Yeah. It was very weak science. And um, um, so they sent out the L.A. City Hall, their best engineers, and guess what? They couldn't find the problem. They believed it was coming from sulfur because sulfur had been the problem in other American cities with air pollution like St. Louis. And... Um, it was almost like L.A. was in a state of den- denial. Some people started suspecting it's cars. It's hydrocarbons from cars reacting in sunlight. And that um, was not um, 
uh, appreciated and embraced until a little scientist at Caltech took a chance. He was a guy from Holland who was trying to escape the war, didn't want to be in this field, but he was angry at the weak science. His name was Ari Hagen-Smith. And he did tests in his labs, and he showed for sure what was coming out of the tailpipe was resulting in this unusual uh, crisis happening. And nobody wanted to believe him because he was going up against the coolest product you could buy, a car. <laughs> We're talking with uh, Chip Jacobs, journalist, co-author of Smog Town, The Lung-Burning History of Pollution in Los Angeles, and Ed Abel, Professor Emeritus, USC Keck School of Medicine. We'll take calls when we come back. I want to hear your memories of smog in Los Angeles. Of course, air pollution is still with us. Southern California is still the smoggiest region of the United States, but the air quality is so much better than what it was just a few decades ago. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. Uh, Dana and his book, Two Years Before the Mask, Mentioned the smoky skies of Southern California, seeing them from offshore. This at a time when Native Americans living in Southern California um, had fires burning for a number of different reasons. But, you know, smoky skies here, smog-filled skies, go way back. And Ed Abel of USC Keck uh, School of Medicine, I want to ask you about the inversion layer, sort of the the geography uh, that all sort of makes Air pollution, whatever we do release into the air, all the more difficult to deal with. Yeah, I think that many people are familiar with it, although they may not know the name of it. Often when you fly into or out of Los Angeles or stand on some of the mountains and look across Los Angeles, you see almost like a brown straight line across the sky where above it it's blue sky and below it it looks brown and hazy. And that is the inversion layer where the, the chemical interaction sort of stops things from mixing the 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 temperature inversion that that occurs because of difference with height sort of effectively works like a like a, a coffee like a, a a pot on a stove with the the top sort of keeping things clamped on over the the entire basin and so as emissions come from the ground they can only go up a certain amount of space and then they just sort of spread out because they can't go up vertically and that's where we sort of get that brown smear that looks so you know interesting and challenging in terms of health. So in a in a region where we've got high population density, heavy reliance on cars, um, industry that's been quite healthy from an economic standpoint, two huge ports, all of this going on, we've got geography we fight on top of that. So that's why it's made this such a challenge. Absolutely. You know, because once the winds develop off the ocean each day, you really can't go over the tops of the mountain range that we have, the San Bernardino Mountains, so it has to sort of blow along the base of it and out east. And so we should basically have a funnel that moves air from the beaches out across the whole city and out onto Riverside, San Bernardino, and further east. So we have this sort of conveyor belt of pollution. Then reverses with offshore winds, because I remember as a kid being at the beach at Santa Monica with burning lungs during days when we had Santa Ana-like winds. Oh, absolutely. Under those conditions, the worst place to be is along the the coast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, just exactly what you wouldn't think. Let's talk with Joanne in Altadena, who grew up in Los Angeles in the 1950s. Joanne, thanks so much. What was it like for you back then? Well... It felt like the entire world was 
peeling onions. That's the only way I can describe it. You talk about the lungs burning, but your eyes were burning and tearing all the time. And that's what it felt like. And I'm so glad you're having the show to tell people why we have all these rules, because it was terrible. And I used to, when I came home from college and I'd visit my mom and I'd say, how can you live here? (laughs) Even though you'd grown up here. That's funny. Joanne, thanks so much. John in Anaheim. John, please share your memories of our terrible smog. Uh, I'm old enough to remember uh, incinerators when we lived in Downey and and then the big push to get rid of incinerators because of the smoke. Yeah. And so in 1963, we were in Los Alamitos and the, uh, in junior high school, and they closed the school. They just told there was smog, and everybody was teary-eyed and coughing. And so they literally closed the school without telling parents. They were trying to call parents, but so everybody just was want, meandering home, and we were surprised, uh, surprised our parents when we got home. Uh, my mom took us to the beach uh, because that was going to be where the clean air was, and it was miserable. You're trying to go out in the water and coughing, and, yeah. and so we still had it there, and it was just terrible. But as the other caller mentioned, that uh, it's wonderful that we have so many regulations now, and we and we can see the mountains routinely. It's just wonderful. And John. So people, I just want to thank you. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. You're making a final point. Well, I, I have a I have a dear friend of mine that loves lighting the fire in the fireplace. And she said, well, I, I said, you've been lighting your fire to keep warm. And she says, no, I can't because we're under a, a alert to uh, not, not be burning uh, wood in the fireplace. And I thought, well, good for you. Yeah, yeah. We've had that over the uh, Christmas holidays, as a matter of fact. And I know that that was put, put a damper, so to speak, on some uh, get-togethers as a result. But uh, for what you're talking about, John, thanks thanks very much. John mentioned incinerators, Chip, which are the way that uh, Southern Californians would get rid of much of their trash by burning it in a backyard, typically brick, uh, like an oven where you, where you would burn, burn it. I remember it uh, unused in my grandparents' backyard by the time I was a kid. Um, and I was it's funny, I was out walking with my wife a couple weeks ago, and we were walking in an uh, unfamiliar neighborhood, and I saw in the backyard a an old incinerator just overgrown, you know, sitting there. So share with it, when were, when were those banned, and how much of a difference did that make? Um, there was a tremendous amount of controversy over the backyard incinerator because as part of the idea that everybody has to sacrifice something, they looked at the smoky incinerators where people, that's where they burn their dry trash. And uh, they were a minuscule part of the problem, like one less than 1%. Um, for, for a while, they thought even cigarette smoking was contributing to smog. And that turned a out lot to, of people not, smoked, but. But, but it turned out Californians really prize their backyard incinerators because in the mid 50s, the Board of Supervisors had a hearing about eliminating them and um, reports from back then. This is long before I was born. They said it was the most controversial uh, supervisors meeting in history. And there were some worries about the audience storming the stage. Wow. And people really did not like their private you know, behaviors being regulated by government. And um, they, the supervisors actually pushed off that vote because they saw the political consequences of asking somebody to change their routine. And they worried about their own careers, maybe their, even their own safety. Yeah. It turned out to be something of a red herring because the real 
dominant source was tailpipes. And we and it just took a while for people to believe Hoggensmith. And the backyard incinerator did eventually fade away. What's what's funny is smog, one of the things it did besides killing the agriculture industry, it actually began uh, the, the roots of curbside trash pickup because they eliminated that. They, you know, they needed an integrated system. And um, guess who were the first people that wanted in on the trash collection world? The mob. <laughs> and LAPD actually came in quite quite early and told the mob, no, you're not going to get your fingers into, in, into our city government. And that's when they sort of went to Las Vegas. All right. Uh, and other cities, of course, which have had mob-operated trash collection. Melissa <laughs> and Santa Ana emailed, I grew up in Long Beach in the 70s. Remember being in elementary school, having horrible pains when I breathed in deeply while playing on the school playground. We were three blocks from the ocean. I had an aunt who lived in Pasadena on the mountainside, not being able to see the mountains from her home when we would visit for Christmas. Pam in Cambria emailed us growing up in Granada Hill in the 50s. I remember we all had incinerators in our backyards to burn trash until they were banned. Ted in Los Angeles emailed, I moved down to Los Angeles in September of 67 to go to USC. I woke up one morning in December, discovered this city was actually surrounded by mountains. (laughs) And it is so beautiful. I remember as a kid, there were some days where either because of Santa Ana winds or, or just perfect weather conditions, it would be clear and it was like a gift. It was so, so gorgeous. And now we have so many more of those days. Nancy in West L.A. emailed, my sisters and I grew up in the Bay Area. We had relatives in Covina and the San Fernando Valley. We'd often drive down Highway 99 and ask our parents, what's the orange and brown stuff up in the sky? Our eyes wouldn't stop tearing up. We were coughing so hard. Vicky in Los Angeles emailed, I remember when we couldn't go outside and play uh, at recess because of the smog. We started having smog alerts as part of the weather reports. Oh, yes. Uh, and Emily in Burbank emailed, how bad is pollution from burning wood in a residential fireplace? I enjoy a cozy fire in colder months, but only when it's damp or wet out to prevent stray embers from starting a wildfire. Does rain wash the atmosphere? Should I feel guilty about my one wintertime indulgence? Emily in Burbank, uh, Professor Ed Aval, your your thoughts on that? How much does wood burning fireplaces cause a problem? Well, wood burning does cause a problem, especially when it's widespread. I mean, an individual fireplace may not be the issue, but obviously, collectively, we all would like that uh, ambiance and burning the wood. The wood creates uh, for for most fireplaces. There there really isn't any filtration system out there, and so the the particles go right out in the air. The the NOx emissions and other organics coming off the, the the burnt wood yeah. going to the air, and we have that air pollution that then takes place. It's a problem for both for those in the immediate vicinity, those who live right near door in, in the neighborhood in terms of breathing, those who have pre-existing respiratory disease, but also a problem for those in the large area because the air does move around and the particles in that air does travel for quite distance. I do love the smell of those wood-burning <laughs> fireplaces when I'm out walking the dog, and I pick it up from one of the house. Boy, I just it, it's a it's a wonderful aroma. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you talking about the history of smog, which continues to be a fight here in Southern California as we still have days surpassing the federal standards for air pollution and continue with the most polluted air in the country. Nonetheless... 
far, far superior to what we had just decades ago. Ed A. Ball is Professor Emeritus, USC's Keck School of Medicine, and Chip Jacobs, journalist and co-author of Smog Town, The Lung-Burning History of Pollution in Los Angeles. Coming up on Air Talk, the remarkable artistry and the life of Ella Fitzgerald, who made Los Angeles her home for many, many years. And of course, also enhanced her prominence with those jazz at the Philharmonic tours and performances at the old LA Philharmonic Hall across from Pershing Square. We'll talk about Fitzgerald's legacy when we come right back. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. 274 newly built units have sat empty for more than 60 days. I'm Nick Gerda. In my news stories on homelessness, I follow the money, hold officials accountable, and tell you which policies are working, which are not, and how that affects people here in Southern California. I'm proud my reporting for LAist helped fast-track VA housing for veterans in West LA and forced an accounting of millions of taxpayer dollars in Orange County. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. A hit recording for Ella Fitzgerald with the Chick Webb Orchestra. She was already enjoying the popularity of singing in front of one of the great bands of that era. But this recording made Ella Fitzgerald a star. She would go on to have a remarkably versatile career uh, with bebop, of course, famous for her scat singing. Uh, and also revered by musicians who could be extremely tough on the singers who fronted bands. Fitzgerald, with her reinterpretation of what we now call the Great American Songbook, also made a lasting legacy and influence on so many great composers who admired the way that she freshly interpreted their songs. Joining us to talk about Fitzgerald, who was a longtime Los Angeles resident and who died here uh, close to 25 years ago, is Judith Tick, author of Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, the jazz singer who transformed American song. Professor Tick is Professor Emerita of Music History at Northeastern University and uh, also author of uh, books and articles on American music and women's history in music. Professor Tick, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure, and I'm happy to tell you that I will become a Los Angeles 
president in about three weeks and look forward to a new climate for my work for Ella Fitzgerald. That's great. Well, let's let's talk about Ella Fitzgerald's prominence in Los Angeles. Norman Grand's the producer. Um, This is a little bit later in her career, puts together these jazz, the Philharmonic tours and performances out of Los Angeles. Share with us the importance of this in the musical evolution of Ella Fitzgerald. Well, first of all, Ella Fitzgerald, although born in Newport News, Virginia, in 1917, was really raised in Yonkers, New York, right near Harlem. And she grew up in close to Harlem's musical life in the 1920s and 30s. She stayed a New York resident until her manager, Norman Grant, said, you've got to come closer to me because we, we are, our collaboration is so important. It was a a big change in her life. She had been working with Decca Records in New York, singing mainly pop songs. And if she didn't, it was because she was pushing something else. And then she came to Los Angeles working with Grants, although she had been working with him since 1949, to work on the songbooks, which was a turning point in her career. Let's listen to Ella Fitzgerald, this, uh, the George and Ira Gershwin composition, Oh Lady Be Good, and you'll hear her scat solo. Oh lady, oh lady, oh lady, be good to me. Ella didn't originate scat singing, but boy, she took it to a whole other level, Judith, and share with us how she did this within the context of the jazz big band. First of all, one of the big themes of my book is how Ella Fitzgerald transformed herself through her originality and reinvention. Even a tisket a tasket, which we heard at the very opening of the show, was a pushback because she wrote it herself and she did not want to be limited to the kinds of material, bland pop songs that Decca was giving her. The same thing is true with the scat that she did for Lady Be Good, because all over that arrangement is the influence of Dizzy Gillespie. A cover on Billboard in 1947 said, Going Dizzy, and it cited Ella. It was very unusual for a singer to take on Bop as such a challenge as she did. She pushed hard to change the stereotype of the jazz vocalist limited to pop and novelty. We're talking with biographer of Ella Fitzgerald, Judith Tick. Her book is Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, the Jazz Singer Who Transformed American Song. I had the uh, honor of seeing Ella Fitzgerald in performance a couple of times, including at the Hollywood Bowl, um, including a double bill with Sarah Vaughn. You talk about musical history on stage. Sarah Vaughn and then Ella Fitzgerald, a night I will never forget. If you have questions about Ella Fitzgerald or you'd like to share a particular performance that uh, is still memorable years later, we're at 866-893-5722. I may... 
I know there may also be some listeners who knew Ella or even performed with her. So please share with us your memories of Ella Fitzgerald. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location, and first name. Let's listen to another selection of Ella Fitzgerald. This from the 1957 album, Ella Fitzgerald Sings the Duke Ellington Songbook. Duke, I'm talking about my saddened doubt. He's a baby, oh, what a doubt. Don't mean maybe my baby that sad. A great composition and a great interpretation, Ella Fitzgerald of Duke Ellington's Satin Doll. Uh, Judith Tick, uh, you know, share with us about the different uh, vocal approaches that Fitzgerald took. There we hear the vibrato in her voice. Then she goes into a scat. How did these different tools that she used in performance evolve over the years? That's a wonderful question because even the songbooks presented a challenge to Ella Fitzgerald's conception of herself and she rose to it because people didn't think she could sing the sophisticated lyrics of Broadway and show tunes. And she did two great songbooks, Cole Porter and Rogers and Hart in 1956 and 57, which proved them wrong. And she said, I people think you can only do one thing and I'm giving them an education. Well, with Duke Ellington, it was a whole other mountain to climb because most of his approaches to songs were through instrumentals and Satin Doll is the perfect vehicle to show that. It didn't even have any lyrics when Ella recorded this and it's a very lovely lyrical scat approach that she uses, although there are little bobsled moments from Dizzy in there. She was a remarkable adapter, and in that recording, you see her simply challenging the original interpretation of Ellington's tune, which was very smooth and and very graceful with her own kind of swing. So she brought to the songbooks her experience as a jazz vocalist, her bop, and then, as you point out, she absolutely relished the chance to sing in her beautiful vibrato and rubato and show off her enormous range. Let's talk a bit about how musicians perceived her because, um, you know, as you write, um, singers fronting bands often toward a fair amount of abuse from the musicians who, who, you know, respected them, I guess, as a source of income, but perhaps not as peer musicians. How did Ella change that? 
That's another great question, because Ella was beloved by musicians who understood her need to belong to their world, let her in the bands. Right from the beginning, Chick Webb said she could come in and sing with the boys in the band in their after-hours session. She had no problem in treating her voice as an instrument. And when you treated your voice as an instrument, you were looking out for freedom. You wanted freedom in interpretation and freedom and flexibility. And band singers at the time had very little of that. They could become crooners, but she wanted much more. So I think that her ability to use her voice as an instrument drew on every facet of her genius. When we come back, we're going to uh, talk about Coral Porter and uh, his evolving view of Ella Fitzgerald interpreting his songs. But let's go to break uh, with uh, a Cole Porter composition from the Cole Porter songbook. Let's do it. Come with Judith Tick, author of Becoming Ella Fitzgerald. We'll be back in a minute. from a hugely popular live album recorded at Deutschland Hall in Berlin. George Gershwin, Summertime, of course, Paul Smith Quartet uh, backing Ella Fitzgerald. That uh, concert, I don't know if it was that actual night of the concert, but she also had an incredible recording of Mac the Knife, and I want to talk with with our guest, Judith uh, Tick, about that in a moment. Author, She's author of Becoming Ella Fitzgerald. But, but let's talk about what Cole Porter had said, because we heard Let's Do It going into the break. How did his views evolve about Ella interpreting his songs? Cole Porter's music was considered too sophisticated for Ella Fitzgerald by many people because his lyrics were filled with French phrases, very complicated English words. And in a way, it reminds me of this play, My Fair Lady, where Eliza Doolittle, the heroine, is given an education in how to sign, how to sound like an upper-class British woman. In a way, Ella Fitzgerald 
tackled that stereotype that she could not reach the level of sophistication that Cole Porter's music demanded. I think readers and listeners should know that there was a gulf between the vast affection and love that the general public had for Ella Fitzgerald and the music critics themselves. And I take a deep dive into that in my book because it was so startling to me. And here is Cole Porter treated as if she is an experimentalist with this great material. It became an unexpected hit, and even today, Cole Porter scholars say it delivered his music right across into mainstream America like no other record did. It's so funny because I I started reading music criticism in the 70s, and by that point, Ella is a revered figure, unlike, I guess, earlier. I didn't even realize there were critics who were skeptical of, of some of these things that really put her on the cutting edge musically. Well, when critics are skeptical, it usually means innovation is happening and someone <laughs> is moving beyond category. Now, I don't, not all the critics were skeptical, and she had great champions in this wonderful critic named Leonard Feather, who was a Los Angeles denizen for many years. But what you what happens with someone like Ella, who transcends categories, is that textbooks don't know what to do with her. Is she a pop singer? Is she a jazz singer? You know, she spoke about that. And would you mind if I read a quote from an interview that I discovered? Please do. In her own words? This is Ella in 1962 talking to a British reporter. I'm going to put on my Ella Fitzgerald hat. I hate being typecast. Maybe I'm more of a jazz singer than a pop one. I don't care to restrict myself. I like to sing what I feel. Sometimes when I've sung a pop song, someone asks me, what's the matter, Ella? Are you going square? And I've given them my answer. No, I'm not going square. I'm going versatile. I like to surprise and please my audiences. I'm sensitive and can feel whether people really enjoy a song. It's quite a problem trying to please everyone. Some come to hear jazz, others to hear numbers from the songbook. I try to include as many jazz items as I can. But all the time, I'm trying to broaden my field. I have to move with the times. I don't want to stand still. I must keep experimenting, trying new ideas and new songs. And in a moment, we'll hear one of those experiments uh, as we talk with Judith Tick about her new book, Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, the jazz singer who transformed American song. I do want to talk about um, her desire to please audiences and even uh, interviewers of her later in her life recounted how she still seemed insecure about you know, whether she could please an audience. This, uh, an artist who had sold so many records, who had filled so many prestigious concert halls around the world with huge followings. Um, can you trace in her childhood those elements, maybe even the first Apollo theater performance that might have factored into this? That's a very good question, because right away, we're back in the Apollo tryout in 1934, when she said herself, I thought I, I'm paraphrasing here, but she gave the impression to many reporters that she thought she was a better dancer than singer. There was a kind of insecurity she had about her own voice, and she said that 
Chick Webb helped her get over that, that she said, quote, I thought my voice was more hollering than singing. I mean, I can't understand that, except that she wasn't, she had to grow into her voice. She had to grow into her genius. And the mission to please an audience became not just a way to become popular, but a true sense of social justice and social progress, trying to reach as many people as possible through jazz and pop to produce a kind of social harmony. If people listened together, then they could understand each other better. It sounds naive, I suppose, to many people today, but maybe not because it's still the great harmonizer of our many differences. She knew she could do it, and she went for it. Uh, we're almost out of time. I just wanted to ask you briefly about her long marriage, the bassist Ray Brown, and um, how, how, uh, how that marriage factored into her professional life. Well, she met Ray Brown when she was touring with Dizzy Gillespie. He was a, a 10 years younger than she, and he was very modernist. Initially, he said he didn't think much of singers until he met his wife, <laughs> which I think is such a great observation for someone just to let it right out there. And he was a tremendous force in her early 50s, in the early 1950s, because she started singing this kind of cabaret style with his solid bass behind her. In a way, it's a different style that culminated in this fabulous album called 12 Nights in Hollywood, which came out maybe about 10 years ago. So Ray Brown helped her become herself, helped right. her... I think move into jazz. More. All right, and we leave you with uh, her her further experimentation. Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On." This from a Santa Monica Civic 1972 recording with the Basie Orchestra and the Tommy Flanagan Trio. Judith Tick is author of Becoming Ella Fitzgerald, the jazz singer who transformed American song from all of us at AirTalk. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. Alliest has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events.